season of Advent always lands on Christians a little bit weird since the resurrection of Christ, uh, because Advent means arrival, or in Latin, that's just a fancy term for it, right? So the idea of season of Advent, the season of arrival, well, Christ did arrive, didn't he? And he came, and he came in the form of a baby, and we're all pretty jazzed about that, and then he left. And he left us with a helper, but he said, hey, I'm coming again. And so we're in this time where he's arrived, and yet he's still going to arrive again. And so we're kind of in this already in between, and that's the tension of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the tension of where we live, where we're in this season of already and not yet. So we have redemption, and we have an experience where the Holy Spirit has come to save us and, and, and Christ has come to save us and the Spirit is indwelled in us if we are believing in him, but we're not fully redeemed. And so we have life in a fallen flesh and we have life in a fallen world. And so we have this caught in the middle sort of feel that Advent kind of wraps up nicely. And it's supposed to be the season of joy, and for many of us it is, and I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know where it's landing on you this morning. For some of you guys, you're like, yeah, break out the jingle bells. I got them right here in my pocket. I got my antlers on my head that light up, you know, the little ones that look like Rudolph, and everybody's pretty jazzed. Uh, my son and my wife are both amazing people to have around at this time of year, my, my um my son Ethan, because uh, he's one of those guys that when you know Thanksgiving is done and the turkey's packed away, or in this case we had tacos this year, um, <laughs> it's a long story, um, but <laughs> when all that's packed away, he's like first one to go to the attic and start getting out the boxes and getting ready, putting away the fall stuff, putting up the Christmas lights, and my wife is right there with him. They put on the Christmas music and they are rolling. And it is awesome. And I, I love to watch that joy and that, that happiness as they break those things out. I'm a guy who loves Christmas decorations when they're up. <laughs> but I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little grumpy putting them up. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what happened in my past. Maybe it's some repressed memory of falling off a roof. I'm not sure. But whatever the case is, I'm a little grumpy putting them up. But I do love Christmas decorations. So maybe that's you. Maybe you are jazzed and ready to roll. I know Scotty is ready this morning. He's like, he's on it. He's had like four cups of coffee and two hours of sleep. And he was rocking out this morning. And his guitar gave me some joy. So I appreciate that, uh, you know, this morning. But anyway, maybe that's where you are. Uh, maybe you are relating to what Bill's message last week was with fear. And you're wrapped up in anxiety and fear of the future, fear of what's going on around you, fear of sickness, fear of who knows what. But maybe you are just so overwhelmed with this sort of generalized anxiety that you are paralyzed. And this idea of being joyful in this season is almost ridiculous to you. Because you wake up in the morning and you're just gripped by a fear. Maybe you're hurting. And this season is one of those weird paradoxes because... Almost all of us uh, have probably lost someone during these seasons, uh, whether it was this year or previous years. If you live long enough, you will have lost someone during this season. And for some of us, that becomes inextricably tied to the celebration, the memory of those whom we've lost. For some of us, it can be a rejoicing because we know where they are, but there's still a sadness in that. And again, that's living in that fallen world because 
death isn't the design. And death wasn't the reason, that it wasn't supposed to happen that way. And so we feel the pain of death, although its sting may be removed. For some of us, we're so tied up in anger, and we have this just below the surface, this anger seething. And all it takes is for somebody to cut us off in traffic and we're ready to mount a 50 cal machine gun to it and just blow them off the road or whatever. But it's, it's this anger that's there and it's built up and it's just seething and it's ready for just the smallest thing and we're ready to yell and, bring, and let, it, let it out. Whether it's our kids that trigger it or some, you know, again, some minor incident, it's there. And usually it's there as a result of something deeper, a fear or hurt that we don't want to deal with. And so we callous ourselves over with anger. Or maybe we callous ourselves over with walls, and like many of us, we end up with apathy. And if I'm being honest with you, that's where I find myself a lot of this season, this particular year. I've been apathetic, where I struggle to feel passionate about anything. And that's a really hard place to be in as much as the things that you need to do to get out of it are exactly what you don't feel like doing. And so as I sat to try to prepare the sermon this week, I found myself facing that. And I found myself feeling flat and unreminded of truths that I know, but I seem to forget so quickly. It's the minutia of the day, isn't it? It's like everything becomes a big deal. Everything becomes just another thing that you got to get done. And i got to remember 18 passwords to get into anything, right? And then on top of that, when you've, you type it in, it says, no, it's incorrect. You type it in again, it's incorrect. You type it in again, it's incorrect. Then you reset it, and you go to type in the password, and they say, you can't use that. That was your past password. I'm like, come on! Are you kidding me? And so you get so worn down by the minutia of the day that by the time the day is over, you're like, that's it, I'm done. I've got nothing left and all I want to do is veg out. And what happens when you veg out? It just leads to more apathy. And you watch Netflix or whatever it is that's on, a game or a sports team or anything, and, and all, the, all that you've done is just feed right back into that cycle of apathy instead of doing the life-giving things that you know are there. So I don't know which of those things finds you this morning and that you can, you can land on where Advent is hitting you this year. But I bet you're in one of them. And if not, you're going to have to come up and tell me where you are because I can't think of another one at the moment. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to continue with our series uh, that we've been doing. And it's been focused on Luke 2. And I'm hoping that the Spirit will do His work to meet us where we are in order to take us where He wants us to be. So we're going to open to Luke 2, if you have your Bibles, and we've been focused primarily uh, this season on uh, verse 10, but we're going to start in verse 8, and I'm going to read through verse 14 just to give us a little bit of the classic Christmas context. Luke 8, uh, sorry, Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were fi filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. So again, our, our focus has been in this season, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Last week, Bill did fear not, and he addressed a number of things uh, that I, I, I are absolutely worthy of repeating, but I'm not going to for the sake of time, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it. But this week, we're going to talk about the fact that he brings good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Well, in order to do that, we're going to just focus on a couple quick questions. They're simple and they're obvious, right? First, what is news? Second, what news is it? Third, what is joy? And then finally, why does this news create joy? So those are the basic questions that we're going to try to answer. The cool thing about this verse, if you actually look at it in Greek, uh, the term that I bring you good news or I proclaim good news, that actually is the Greek term evangelize. So to evangelize is to proclaim good news. You probably already knew that, but sometimes it's nice to have that reminder. Uh, so he's proclaiming good news of great joy. Well, what is news? News is simply information, right? It's information that comes. It's often recent, and it's often something that hasn't, you haven't heard before. That's news, right? If, if you've heard it before, sometimes it's, it's old news, or it's no news to you. You already know it. But in the case of the gospel, it's good news. It's good news that has happened. All news has already happened, hasn't it? it? I can't tell you news that's happening in the future because it hasn't happened yet. But if I'm bringing you information about something that's happened, that's in the past. And what's cool about this is he says, I bring you good news. This is something that's already happened. And he's talking about, the angel here is talking about the birth. And that's already happened. But he's talking about more than that, isn't he? He's talking about the Christ. And he's talking about the fact that a Savior is born. I'm getting ahead of myself. But when news comes, particularly in today's day and age, we are skeptical of it, aren't we? Because there's so much news out there. We're in an information age, and we've exchanged information for wisdom, oftentimes, and we have so much information that we don't know which information is true and which is you know, some kind of falsehood or exaggerated or from some biased source. And so we ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what is the source of the news? And number two, what corroborating evidence do we have of that? So first, what's the source? Well, in this case, the source is, an, is God, a messenger, is sent from God to give us the news. That's what angel means, is messenger. So a messenger of God is sent to bring us news. What corroborating evidence do we have? Well, number one, there's going to be a sign for you. That was in, in, uh, later in the verses. It said there's going to be a sign. A baby is going to be wrapped in swaddling and, and cloths in a manger. Okay, that's pretty good. We can go verify that, right? And then the second, an angel said it. <laughs> that's pretty crazy. <laughs> That in and of itself is corroborating evidence. That's, that's pretty remarkable, right? Now, not just any angel, 
because we can't always believe angels, right? That's what Paul tells us later, and that's a long story. But, you know, if something just appears to you and says it, that's, that's a miracle to begin with, and then we test it further with corroborating evidence. So in this case, an angel of the Lord said it, so we take it as pretty good authority, and then we go and check it out. Well, what news is it? And again, a Savior is born. So in this time, remember, we're living under oppression, right? The impression of Rome was, was occurring to anyone who was in Jerusalem. They were under political oppression. They were under military oppression. They were often in poverty. The shepherds in particular that are receiving this message are in poverty, uh, and, and they're living in a, a rather destitute situation, but it's life is normal. And so a Savior comes. Well, that's good news. But it's not just any Savior. It's the Christ. Remember, Christ isn't just Jesus' last name. It's a title. The Christ means, in Greek, it's the same thing as the Messiah in Hebrew, and it means the anointed one. It's the one whom the prophets have been foretelling for centuries now. And so this is long-awaited news. This is something that we've been expecting, and now it comes. So it's expected that that long-awaited news is going to elicit a joyful response. And that's why he says... I bring you news of great joy. But what is joy? Well, joy, first, is a commandment. It's a commandment for us. So I want to build a little bit of tension here in this idea that we are commanded, as believers in Christ, to be joyful. You are, 1 Thessalonians says, rejoice at all times. Be joyful at all times. Everyone here who has been joyful at all times in the past week, please raise your hand. No? No take? Oh, Mark, all right, Mark. I, I, you know what? I actually believe you. <laughs> but if you know Mark, you're probably like, yeah, well, he probably has. So the, the kicker is it's something that's commanded. The joy of the Lord is also our strength. So we have a commandment and we have a promise that it's going to sustain us. But we have this tension that occurs because it's something that we know in our own selves is not possible without some crazy divine help, right? I'm going to get back to that in just a second. So let's look at a definition of joy. And uh, John Piper gives a cool one. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Let me break that down. Number one, it's a good feeling. So joy is an emotion, right? An emotion like fear or anger or sadness. These are all emotions. And emotions are really hard to manufacture. If I tell you right now, be sad. Some of you are like, no problem, already there. Some of you are like, well, uh, okay, I can think about something fat, sad and, and eventually get there. But uh, you can't just instantly create sadness in yourself. There has to be something that occurs to, to manufacture or to, to, uh, to produce that in you. Fear. If, if, there's, if, if, you, if I say be afraid right now, again, some of you are like, no problem. Got that. But for some of us, it takes, it takes a good bit. I watched as uh, we, were, we got, had a chance to take a trip uh, down to Costa Rica, which was uh, kind of a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And uh, we went down there, and my son paddled out into some really giant waves uh, that were bigger than anything we'd ever been in. 
uh, and they were Pacific waves, which feel more powerful than Atlantic waves. Uh, the science behind that still is a little troubling for me, but anyway, it's there. Um, but we, he paddled out in these giant overhead waves, and his, uh, he got out to the set, and then a cleanup set came through and snapped his leash off his board, and the board got washed in, and he was out in the waves without any flotation device of any kind, and the, the currents were incredibly strong. It didn't take anything to manufacture fear in me in that moment. As I'm standing there watching him, it took nothing for me to be very nervous and very cautious about what was about to happen. That was just a reaction. He got in fine, by the way. He did a great job. <laughs> um, but that fear wasn't something that I had to manufacture or conjure up in me. It just occurred. And the same is true with joy. Joy is not something that we can just instantly manufacture, is it? It's something that is commanded, but we don't know how to produce it. So Augustine uh, says, uh, or Augustine, depending on who you are, <laughs> says a cool quote. He says, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. And he gives us a little bit of hint as to what's coming in the next part of the definition, and that is that it's a good feeling produced in the soul by the Holy Spirit. Produced by the Holy Spirit. See, the command is for those who are in Christ, be joyful, but we can't manufacture that. So the Holy Spirit has to do that for us. Yeah, well, how does he do that? Does he just instantly wave a wand and say, you're joyful? Well, in some instances, yes. In some instances, you can be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit so quickly that all of a sudden you are overwhelmed and, and, and joyful, joy just kind of bubbles up out of you. But usually it's caused through a sight of Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit's job is to shine a light on Jesus and say, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at what he has done for you. Look at how much he loves you. Look at his character. Look at how beautiful he is. Seeing the beauty of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit's job in you, is to help you see the beauty of Christ. So he shines a light. He'll shine a light often and most often for us through Scripture. That's the the scaffolding, if you want to call it, or the matrix through which he often speaks and shows you. He'll take a verse and he'll just sort of lift it off the page and it's exactly the verse you needed to hear that day. Or it's something that's been hidden in your heart as he's hidden his word in your heart and then he calls it to mind at just the right time and you can respond with joy. In some cases, it's in the world. So in the word and in the world, right? As he shows you the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world, in the word, on the scripture, in the world, it could be through something as simple as a sunset or the contrast between storm clouds and blue skies. Or it could be a flower or anything in, in, in that. There can be There is beauty around us and that reminds us of a creator God. Remember, Looking at something, an, an art, a piece of art, doesn't make us worship the art, right? It should make us appreciate the creator. And that's where the Holy Spirit does that. He shines a light on something in creation, in the world, or on a person, and says, here's an example of the beauty of Christ. And so we begin to respond. Joy is a little bit different and is often confused with happiness. And there's a big difference there, but it's subtle. That, how did that work? Big difference, it's subtle. But yeah, I think you get where I'm going. Uh, <laughs> the idea is that 
Joy is something that is underneath the surface that causes a reaction to us, and it can often produce happiness. But happiness is something that's incredibly fragile in our current state, right? You can be happy right now. You could be, I could, you know, we could leave this service and you could be all bebopping down the road and then you get in your car and somebody cuts you off and that's it, ah! Right? And you're ready to go. Happiness is so fragile. It can be something that is cut off, whether it's from a sports team. I happen to like soccer. I was watching some, a little bit of the World Cup and uh, I caught part of the game on Friday and I was watching people who were uh, rooting for the Netherlands and, and uh, you know, they, the Dutch had come back and tied with... Uh, uh, now I can't remember, uh, Argentina. Um, and the, it showed a close-up of the fans, and the fans were elated. I mean, the, the joy, the, the happiness that they're experiencing. They're like, this is amazing! And then in the shootouts when they lost, <laughs> utter abject sadness and depression. You would think that someone had just been taken from them who they cared about very much. But the point is that happiness is like this roller coaster but joy is different, and the expression of joy, although it can often be in happiness, sometimes it's in tears. Joy doesn't always have to look like happy laughter. Joy can be an underpinning of knowledge that in this time of sadness, in this time of heaviness, it's going to be okay. And there is an end, and there is a reason. And that's the difference there, and we're, we're going to hit a little bit more on that later, but that's the the main concept is that happiness is an emotion that can be an outflowing of joy, but it's just a quick fleeting thing uh, for most of us, particularly in this time of in-between. So, what else can joy look like? Throughout history, we've seen believers do some amazing things. We've seen believers uh, in the first century who were captured by Rome and put into the Colosseum to be torn apart by lions for the sake of entertainment. We've seen them go to that death singing hymns. How do you do that? We've seen believers in World War II who were imprisoned in Nazi camps, extermination camps, for helping Jewish people. And we've seen Jewish people there who have a faith in God, who sing hymns and can rejoice in the face of having everything stripped away from them, in the face of having their health taken, their family taken, their wealth taken, everything that we usually depend on for happiness. In the face of that stripped away, Betsy Tenenbaum, who was uh, one of those people, one of those Christians who helped Jewish people escape and was then imprisoned. She said, there is no pit deep enough that God can't reach you and that his light can't pierce there. She died in a, in a concentration camp of a sickness, but her sister, Corrie Tenenbaum, went on to tell the story of their lives, and it was incredibly dramatic, incredibly life-giving, and the idea being Again, in the face of this, she still had joy, and she led people in singing and worshiping despite their circumstances. So throughout history, we've seen that. In fact, in this very story, we see it just a few verses before that, and we see it with Mary. Who is Mary? Mary was a young girl 
unwed. She was probably between 14 and 16 years old in a very traditional patriarchal society. So she had very little worth in that sense. And she found herself pregnant. She was poor, destitute in that way, uh, had, had almost no worldly possessions. And this could only be, apart from her faith, bad news. Because what would be the outcome of, the, of an unwed, poor girl being pregnant at that time? Well, first of all, she was engaged, which at that time was effectively like being married. So it was almost certainly divorce. Joseph had planned, in fact, if you read the other accounts, he had planned to divorce her quietly before an angel interceded and told him, it, it's okay, it's, she's legit, and this really is of God. But she also would definitely be an outcast in her society, in her community. They would have thrown her out if they didn't stone her to death for adultery. So this news that the angel came and told her, you're going to bear a child and his name will be Jesus and he'll be the Messiah, if it weren't for her faith, that would be nothing but bad news. And it still could mean some really bad news for her, right? But she responded by saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then she took a four-day walk to her cousin's house, who lived up in the high countries. And that, that, during that four-day walk, I like to think that she spent quite a bit of time reflecting and remembering who God is and what his promises are. And then when she arrived, she gave a song. We know it as Mary's Magnificat or, or anything, uh, or things like that. But she basically says, he who is mighty has done a great thing. And she's, she's rejoicing in the middle of this. She begins singing a praise. And in that praise, it's only 10 lines long, but do you know she references the Old Testament scriptures more than 20 times? How did a 15-year-old girl in a patriarchal society who's not allowed into the, the uh, theological schools of the day, the Bible schools of the day, she didn't have access to a Bible, she didn't have access to the scrolls, yet she had hidden his word in her heart, and it just came out in, a, in the form of a song and praise. So the question is, when we're in this in-between time, where is your joy? What's stealing it? Do you have it? Is it there? Or do you have this indomitable buoyancy that joy creates? You know, the writer of Hebrews says that hope is the anchor of the soul. So hope, and, and, and I have to remind people here, biblical hope is different than what we say when we say hope today in, in our English language. Biblical hope is a certainty, a forward-looking expectation of what is to happen, not, boy, I hope it doesn't rain this afternoon, right, where we don't have a certainty of that happening either way, a maybe. And I, I feel like I have to say that every time, so if you've heard me say it before, I apologize. But So it's a forward-looking expectation. Hope is a forward-looking expectation of what is to happen, and it becomes the anchor of our soul. Well, what are we looking forward towards? The second arrival, Right? The justice, the redemption. This morning as we were praying, Scotty actually um, brought that up and he said, 
in this, in this time of in-between. How beautiful is it that we have that looking forward, that idea of, of what is going to happen. We, we can look forward and see the new heavens and the new earth are going to be, this, it's going to be remade. It's going to be perfect. It's going to be set right. All justices will, will occur, right? We'll, we will have justice, and yet we'll have mercy. And those of us whose name are in the book of life will go on to rejoice into eternity. So that is our forward-looking expectation. But what's stealing it right now? Well, chances are we're either forgetting some truth about God or we're believing some lie about him, right? Uh, Friday, my wife Jess was studying Psalm 77, and it really struck me where he goes through, he's lamenting, and then he goes through a list of questions, the psalmist does. And he says, will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never again show me his favor? Has his loyal love disappeared forever? Has his promise failed forever? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has his anger stifled his compassion? I'm sickened by the thought that the Most High might become inactive. That's the psalmist praying a very honest prayer. Those of you who, in the beginning, when I was asking where this season was landing on you, those of you who are hurt or angry, some of those questions might re re resonate with you really loudly. And it's the challenge of us to take those questions just like the psalmist did and with honesty pour them out at the feet of Jesus. Pour them out at God and say, can you handle this? Because he can. And then the psalmist goes on to answer how we are to answer those questions. He says, I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember the works of the Lord. And then he goes through a list of things that the Lord has done. And he remembers that he led them through the waters, not around them. He led us in the storms. Didn't make them necessarily go away. See, God's way is often taking us through some of the hardest trials. And in fact, if we look at James 1, what does it say? Anybody remember James 1? Consider it all joy when you face trials of any kind and every kind. See, we're considering it as joy. Does that mean that the trials themselves are good things, like joyful things? Cancer is not good. Death is not good. But we consider it as good because of Romans 8.28, where he says, Behold, I will work all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes and who love him. So, as a Christian, we can take those two things and begin to join them together. This idea that trials are going to come in your life. Remember, there's that falsehood that, hey, because I believe in God, everything's going to be hunky-dory rosy. Well, that's not true. He's not taking you, plucking you out of the world because the world is still fallen. But he does 
give you the strength to go through them. And more than that, he only brings the things into your life to the degree that is needed to bring you into perfection and to do accomplish his purposes and will so that at the end of things, at the end of all things, you will be able to see back and look and say, yeah, I see how that glorified God and was for my good. Now, how hard is that when you're holding your friend's hand as he's dying from cancer in extreme pain and leaving behind three boys and a beautiful wife? See, in the midst of that trial, and even now, I don't know why. It doesn't make sense. It just hurts. It's painful. In the midst of those trials, there's, there's no reason to have joy until you consider the end. Until you look forward with that forward-looking expectation and say, yeah, he's got this. I don't know how, but I know that he's good. So what lies are you believing about him? What truths are you forgetting this season that's stealing your joy? There's many of them. That he's a disapproving God, that he looks at you and he's critical. Like I often, when I'm not in a place of health and a place of joy, I often look at my kids and I'm like, ah, oh, you didn't clean up this and you didn't do that. And that's, not, that's not how God looks at us. He's not disappointed with us. And we have to remember those things. We have to remind ourselves constantly of those things because the world is trying to erode that away. And we have an adversary who's doing a great job of reminding us constantly of all the things around us that are bothering us. But he's bigger than that, and he's one. Galatians 24 also reminds us that there's false teaching out there that's out there to spy out our freedom in Christ. And that freedom in Christ is easily susceptible to an idea that we have to take back on the law and do something in order to earn God, in order to earn his favor, in order to earn his righteousness. We believe so many times that he's an angry God, that he's disappointing, that he's disappointed. All of those things are absolute lies. And we have to constantly go back to Scripture to remind ourselves who he is. Some of us need to go to Revelation 12 to get that. Some of us are okay praying to little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. But a lot of us have to go to Revelation 12 and remember that there is a rider who's coming back, and he has a sword coming out of his mouth, and on his thigh is tattooed the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he is coming to set things right. Listen to this awesome quote. This is by Michael Byrd, who's a theologian. He says, Jesus' death is not only a transaction of my sin being placed into Jesus' account. There's much more to it. Jesus lets the powers do their worst to him. He takes the full brunt of sin, he drinks the dregs of judgment, and he allows death to hold him in its clutches, and then, in the midst of a powerless death, emerges a divine saving power to forgive, redeem, and renew. The festering cancer of sin has at last heard news of its cure. In the apex of death, life rises with healing in its wings, and Satan's force is spent and his worst was no match for the best of the Son of God. 
The fatal wound of Jesus deals a fatal blow to death. Now listen to this sentence. This is, this is a great sentence. The power of this present darkness shivers as the looming tsunami of the kingdom of God draws ever nearer. The powers of this present darkness, the things that are all around us, that are constantly plaguing us, that are constantly trying to erode our joy, shiver at the coming tsunami of the kingdom of God. It's okay, you can say amen to that. Thank you. (laughs) He is coming. He is coming. He's here, but he's coming. And it will be set right. As the praise team comes up, I just want to invite you to begin asking yourselves a few questions. What passages, practices, or prayers come to mind that bring you joy and things that you can do to overcome where you found yourself this season? So the idea being, if you're apathetic or you're a sluggard and you say, there's a a lion in the street, I can't get up today right? If you say, I'm hurt and I don't want any part of this because where is God? If you're asking the questions that the psalmist asked, I want you to know there's answers. So I want you to begin thinking and saying, where, oh Lord, are you going to meet me this season? Not in the ideal, not in necessarily the normal traditions and practices, but where in Scripture, in the real, in this moment, can he meet you? So I want you to open your heart during this last song and just begin to ask the Spirit to come and produce in you joy, because that is a fruit of the Spirit. You're commanded to have joy, but you can't do it on your own. So ask the Spirit to show you Christ clearly. When is the last time that you have entered his throne room, opened your eyes, and looked on a Savior who loves you, on a Savior who, but for the joy that was set before him, suffered the cross, endured its shame? That joy set before you, before him, was you. You are the joy. You are the joy that was set before him. You can rejoice in that at all times. Let me pray. Father God, we just thank you this morning. I feel the limitations of my abilities, of language, of this time to try to relate a truth that feels too big. I don't have the ability to produce joy in myself, let alone in anyone else in this room. Father, my abilities just to walk through the day sometimes feel too limited to even get through it with a modicum of happiness. But Lord, we know that there is a truth that is bigger than that. We know that you are a God who says, are you kidding me? While you were an enemy, I rescued you. How much more will I rescue you now that you are my child? I have called you sons and daughters. Lord, that you have made us co-heirs with you is absurd. (laughs) It's incredible. And I pray, Father, that you would lift us up, that we could see the work of Christ clearly today, 
that we could begin rejoicing in this Advent season that as we build towards Christmas, our joy would grow and then we would remember that it's always Christmas in the hearts of your people because you are here and you promise never to leave us, never to forsake us. We lift your name in Jesus' work. Amen.